Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Would you please stand with me as we read the teaching text? Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is possible, but with God all things are possible. God, as we come before you today, we just pray that uh, our hearts will be open to hear from you, that you will speak through John, and that we will just be receptive to your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Well, first of all, I would like to apologize to all the women wearing sleeveless shirts because it's, I'm told it's like 19 degrees in here. So if you want to like scoot closer to the person next to you to get their body heat, you're welcome to do that. Even if they're a stranger, you've got my blessing. Um, we're now a week and a half into the New Testament as part of the church going through the year of the Bible. And uh, so if you don't know anything about that, I encourage you to go to our website, cornerstonetulsa.org. And at the very middle, it says Year of the Bible. Click on that, and you can track with us. We're doing daily readings, and we're now about a week and a half in. And one of the things I'm looking forward to this fall is, as we're teaching every Sunday morning, I've invited a handful of friends to come and teach this fall and just to provide other voices um, uh, just to supplement what we're doing. And so uh, this fall, I'm inviting my friend Ashley Matthews, who's an Anglican pastor out of Atlanta, to come, and she's going to share with us. Uh, some of you will know Jason Jackson, who was on staff at Asbury. He's now at uh, New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Jason is going to come and teach on a Sunday morning this fall, which I'm looking forward to. And then others of you will know John Enzer, who was at Wright Christian for a long time. And John uh, is now a professor at uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And John will be teaching. And so really looking forward to this fall as we go through uh, the New Testament together. Today we're talking about the topic of Jesus and money, and some of you, if you knew that that's what we were talking about, probably would have elected not to come to church this morning. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but we're talking about Jesus and money or, or the topic of you know, church and money, and when we talk about money, we're talking about so much more than just paper currency or coin currency. 
When we talk about money, and if we were to reflect and dig a little bit on that topic, we find that we're not just talking about money, we're really topping, talking about security, talking about security, which is why it's, it's, a, it's a, a sensitive topic. And at numerous levels, we're talking about it at some level about physical security. Like you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that base level. Um, security in like, I've got food, I've got a place to rest, I've got clothes to put on my body. There's physical security. At the next level, there's a kind of emotional security. If you have money in the bank, you feel like, okay, I'm okay. I'm all right as a person. I'm going to make it. I've got money. You breathe a bit easier when you see some numbers in the account versus seeing red. We talk about money, and if you have it, there's a kind of emotional security that can come with that. There's also, when we talk about money, a kind of relational security. If you have money, you feel like you've got the space to do stuff with other people, and so you can uh, develop friendships, you can go out to eat together, you can travel together. There's a kind of relational security that you might feel if you've got money in the bank that you might not feel if you felt like things were pretty tight. There's relational security. Uh, one of the more like yucky ones to talk about is, is when we have money in the bank, there can be a kind of image security. This gets into the comparison trap, talking about like how are we competing or measuring up to other people in their lifestyle, the car we drive, the house we have, the clothes that we wear. If we feel like we have money, it helps comfort that part of us that wants to feel secure in our image. And then finally, though we never word it this way, there can be a kind of ultimate security that we feel from money. Like you think if you've got money, you've got a plan for education, you've got a plan for retirement, your needs are met, your wants are being satisfied, you think, I'm okay. And probably like none of us would articulate these things. With the exception of physical security, none of few of us would probably say out loud, I feel like I have image security or emotional security, relational security, certainly not the ultimate security from having money. But at an unconscious or a subconscious level, many of us behave as if this is true. If I have money, I'm good, I'm okay. So when it comes to having a conversation about Jesus and money or church and money, which is probably the more like precarious of the topics, church and money, there can be for some this knee-jerk defensive reaction. And for some people, because of your history with the church or you've just seen enough TV preachers, you think they're just, those church people are just out to get my money. And you hear stories of pastors who are pleading to their supporters uh, for, for donations, for resources, then they go and they live these opulent lifestyles. There's uh, the Instagram account, Preachers and Sneakers. Has anybody seen this? Which loves to catch pastors wearing ridiculously priced uh, tennis shoes. And so I don't know who this pastor is, but if we've got that picture, oh, the next one, um, that's a fun one too. They love to find like pastors wearing expensive shoes because it confirms all those pastors are just out to get my money. There's some of us in this room who have that knee jerk when pastors are talking about money. It's just to support some opulent lifestyle. But I'm going to guess for the majority of people in this room that when it comes to money, if there's any nervousness, that defensive response is less about mistrust about how the funds are going to used to be used, but more a fight-or-flight response to the idea that someone is threatening your security, that someone wants to take away that which makes you feel safe and okay in life. 
Now, one of the major problems or, or hurdles to overcome when a church talks about money is that one of the primary ways they frame this topic of money has to do with fundraising. There's a church consulting group. There are probably many of them, but I know of one. There's a church consulting group that says that every time a church takes an offering, the pastor should get up and give a mini commercial for why giving your money to this church is the best thing that you can do. Uh, the thinking is that nonprofits are competing for dollars, and so you want to make sure that your church, your organization, is at the front of the pack, and you don't give your money to OU or OSU or somebody else. Uh, give your money to the church. And I personally do not believe that we should have a commercial break in the middle of worship. And I just openly reject the fundraising model of talking about money in church. We get marketed to all the time. There's some 5,000, 10,000 ads that every one of us see every day. We don't want to be marketed to in church. Because when we're getting sold something, and that's what it feels like when people are, are in fundraising mode or commercial mode, when, when, when we feel like we're being sold something, we typically shut down. When a, when a marketer or a solicitor calls you, do you get excited about that call or do you hang up as soon as you realize it's a robocall? You obviously hang up. You, you, you shut down. There's a part of you that like quarantines yourself against that person. You're like, I don't want to have anything to do with being sold something, being, being marketed to in an intrusive kind of way. But the dangerous thing about when churches take this fundraising approach and people feel like they're being pushed something or being sold something is they close off a part of their heart that has to do with money and security. And this is a part of our world and our life relating to money and security about which Jesus has a lot to say an area about which Jesus is deeply concerned. If you did your New Testament reading, you would have seen this this week. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And this word money is not just currency. It's, it's a proper noun called mammon. He names this. Uh, there's an author named Douglas Jones who in his book, Dismissing Jesus, has this to say. Let's go to the next one there. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon or money. That's the word that Jesus is using in this passage. Jesus did not deny that money was a God, that God even has a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity, Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left versus right, liberal versus conservative, the envious versus the entrepreneur, or Christian versus Muslim. Let's go to the next one. He says, Jesus didn't make mammon just a side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols, for Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as, read this with me, the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality or knowledge or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Jesus never said you can't serve sexuality in God or knowledge in God, though these were idols too. And so this morning, we're going to have a conversation not about fundraising, but a conversation about discipleship and about the direct competitor to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
So we read this passage in Matthew chapter 19. It's on four, page 1403 if you want to like, keep track with it in the Bible. And, and uh, it's in several of the other Gospels, and when we read it, sometimes uh, the editors of these Bibles will put a title, and they'll call this one The Rich Young Ruler. And Jesus has this interaction with this young man, and he's a young guy who seems to have life pretty well figured out. Uh, a young guy who's confident, who seems to have it all figured out. He's got like all of the boxes in life ticked off. He's professionally successful. He's developing this philosophy of life. He seems to be fairly devout religiously, and he hears that Jesus is passing through his town. So he goes to, to consult with the good teacher, to have a conversation with this young up-and-coming rabbi and, and get a little nugget of wisdom to add to his panoply of other like, inf- like pieces of wisdom that are getting him through life. And this guy quickly finds that he's not interacting with just another teacher. This is what we've just read in Matthew. Jesus responded to the guy. He said, why do you ask me about what is good? He replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which one? He inquired. Let's click again. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, this word means fully realized. If you want to be complete, like you've got it all together, then go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then after you've done that, come and follow me. The version in Mark is just slightly different. I want you to look at this. The text says, Jesus looked at the young man after they've had this conversation. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And then Matthew in his version concludes in this way. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, vexed, or aggrieved because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, then who then can be saved? And he concluded, looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, as with every passage of Scripture, this comes in a context. There's something that happens before this and something that happens after this. And one of the interpretive keys, I think, for understanding this little pericope, this little story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, comes from the story that happens immediately before it in Matthew chapter 19, where people were bringing their children to Jesus so that Jesus could bless them. And the disciples begin to interfere, like, who are these kids? But Jesus interjects, and he says this. He said, let the kids come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. These little kids that you're, trying, that you're saying are getting in the way and are a nuisance, these are the property owners of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus has this conversation with the rich young ruler. He says, it's hard for folks like him to get in. But for the kids, they're already property owners. Um, One of my children is the most generous human being I've ever met in the world and loves giving gifts. 
Anytime you come to my house, uh, this child is going to give you something, especially if you're a kid. You're going to leave with a stuffed animal. You're going to leave with a drawing. You're going to leave with something because my kid's just generous and loves to bless other people. And um, my kids have piggy banks and, you know, like, well, random, I never use current, like, coin and paper currency anymore. So in the event that they come across some currency, they'll put it in their piggy banks. And, you know, they've got mostly coins rattling around in there, but I also know that my kids have got a decent collection of fives, tens, and twenties. And one of them in particular, like I knew they had three or four twenties in there. So a couple of days ago, my kids empty out their piggy bank and they like sorting stuff. And one of my children, all of the paper currency is gone. And Emily said, where on earth is all your, didn't you have some paper money in there? And they said, I guess I've just been really generous lately. And I don't know who, but some people have come to my house and left like $20 or $40 richer. (laughs) And Emily and I had this knee-jerk reaction to our child like that that was a foolish thing to do. But it brought such delight to the heart of my kid. We were in awe of my kid because money had laid no claim on their heart. And there's a stark contrast in this story, but I think with kids in general, with the, genero- the generosity and the guilelessness of children and the controlling and the calculating nature of adults. For kids, like it's just like it's a dollar with, it's a green dollar with a 20 on it. Like it doesn't mean anything, but to us, there's so much meaning attached to that dollar bill. So no coercion was required for that money to flow freely from my kid. But standing in the presence of Jesus who loved him, this rich young ruler walked away sad. Timothy Keller has a great quote on this. He says, money flows effortlessly toward that which is its God. For Americans, it's all of us who tend to be security-obsessed, wealth-obsessed, who by default pledge allegiance to mammon. One of the primary evidences of authentic spiritual transformation in our lives is authentic financial transformation in our lives. A complete recreation, a reorientation of our relationship with money. Because remember, when we're talking about money, we're not just talking about currency, we're talking about security. We're talking about control, being in the driver's seat of our lives. And the evidence of a life that's been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ is a life that has been fully surrendered and abandoned, and that shows up in our money. Because we trust the one who knows everything before we even ask, and we know that he loves to bless us. He's going to provide everything we need. Genuine spiritual transformation necessarily leads to genuine financial transformation. Consider the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you may have heard growing up, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbs up in the tree. He's a tax collector. Nobody likes him. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. So he goes to Jesus' house, and this is what happens. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And how does Jesus respond? He said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus had already given his faith to Jesus. He demonstrated that by giving his finances to Jesus. And Jesus responded saying, truly or unmistakably, 
For a tax collector to do this, salvation has come to this house. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I quoted from a lot a couple of weeks ago in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says that in taking up the call to follow Jesus, the disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity. That's how it feels at first. But they come to discover it's really the absolute security and safety of fellowship with Jesus. They come from a life which is observable and calculable, a life that is manageable and controllable, into a life where everything is unobservable unobservable and fortuitous, out of the realm of the finite, into the realm of infinite possibilities. Following Jesus is is a complete surrender of one kind of security and an exchange for another kind, an embrace of another kind altogether. Now, you're probably all wondering when I'm going to come to this question. Well, then how much should I give? And it would be a mistake at this point in our conversation to address that question. How much do I need to give to be good with God? Because the question, even in somewhat of a desire to be honorable toward our Savior, reflects our desire for control. We're asking, what is it going to take to get God off my back in the area of my finances? Uh, James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Community, identifies one of the false narratives or the false beliefs that many of us have uh, in our relationship with money. And the false narrative is this, what I have is mine to use for my own pleasure. This is the false narrative. What I have is mine to use for my own pleasure. And he suggests an alternate kingdom narrative. That's what he has to say. He says, in contrast to the narrative, what's mine is mine, the true narrative is what appears to be mine is really God's. Nothing I have is mine. It's all a gift from God. We get easily duped into thinking that the things we have in our possession are ours and that we therefore get to choose how to use them. But in truth, God has designed human life in such a way that makes this illusion quite easy to believe. God has given each of us a little kingdom over which to say what happens. This is God's plan. He wants us to be stewards. So he gives us bodies, talents, and money so we can produce good things. He continues. But our little kingdoms are not our own. We are stewards of God's gifts. Everything belongs to God. That changes everything. No longer can I say what is mine is mine to do with what I please. Instead, what is mine is not really mine but God's. And therefore, I must ask, and here is a great and a dangerous question, how shall I use the gifts you have given me? And this fundamental shift affects all of our daily decisions. I love that line. What appears to be mine is really God's. And that question, how shall I use or how shall I steward the gifts you have given me? And this is a much better question and a much more holistic question than how much should I give? The latter question assumes that, that, um, that not everything that we give to God is therefore ours, but the former question assumes that everything is His in the first place and we're just stewards of it. I don't believe that the New Testament teaches a mandatory tithe of 10%. 
I believe that the call of Jesus in the New Testament calls for a voluntary surrender of 100%. And it's this shift from owner to steward that makes all the difference. And stewards ask a different set of questions. This is Smith again. How is God leading me in the use of my financial resources? In light of the great need in our world, what is God calling me and my fellow apprentices to in terms of standard of living and material possessions? It will not necessarily mean that we'll be asked to sell everything and live among the poor, but it does mean that we will look at our income and our assets in a new light, one illuminated by the light of the kingdom of God. Why is it that we are unwilling to trust God with our resources? Why is it that we we feel like a defensiveness against giving? I think there are a handful of reasons. Uh, One of them is that we're just afraid of surrendering control. It's kind of what Ben was getting at. It's like, I want a life that's observable and controllable. I want to feel safe because I know that I've got the reins and the steering wheel of my life. We don't trust him because we're afraid of surrendering control. Another one's like, we don't trust him to meet our needs. It's like, you, you surely don't know what I need, so like I need to be the one to take care of that. God helps those who help them th- themselves. That's the thinking. Another reason we may not trust him is that we're just crazy in debt and we feel overwhelmed in this area. It's like, no, I can't possibly trust you because you don't know my situation. Another one might be like our finances in general are just disorderly. We have no idea what's coming in, what's coming out of our lives. And so it feels like we don't have the margin or the space or like the internal clarity to be able to fully surrender ourselves to God in this way. Another one might be that our wants and our needs are confused, that we're surrounded by people who have a particular standard of living. And so we think that things that we would name as needs, but they're really actually wants. You can, you can get away without a new iPhone every time they come out. You can get away without that next thing that everybody else is doing. We have confusion about our wants and our needs. One of them may just be plain ignorance. Like, maybe you're new to Jesus. Maybe this is an area of your walk with Him. Like, you've been in, in church or you've been trying to follow Him for a while. And you thought, you know what? Honestly, I never thought, what does Jesus think about my finances? And then for others of us, like, it's just, it's plain disobedience. It's, I know that that's an area of my life where he's inviting me to surrender control, but dang it, I don't want to think about it, and I'm going to put it off as long as I can, and I wish you'd warned us this, this, this is what you're going to talk about, because I wouldn't have gone here this morning. All of these reasons, reasons we don't trust, but how do we start? And I want to give four prompts And I think these are useful for everyone, whether you would say you're in a spot where you've surrendered your finances to Jesus, this is going to be a really good reminder. Whether you're in a spot where you're learning to trust or you're just like starting from scratch, how do you start trusting God with your finances? The first is, I would say, invited to willfully shift ownership. So every month that paycheck comes in or however your world with money works, Uh, You think, great, I've got money in the bank. Willfully shift ownership from this is my money. This is what looks like my money, but it's actually God's money. Um, Emily and I were talking about this yesterday, just like reflecting on our own integrity in this topic. And we found like 
Even for us, like doing a liturgy or singing a song, everything can become rote. Everything you can just do out of routine. I've been tithing since like the seventh grade. But I think this shift makes all the difference in the world. Like, no, I'm not just doing it because this is what you do. It's like, no, we're giving because everything we have is already his. Shift ownership. I think the second prompt that we could do in learning to trust God with our finances is to start asking better questions. That question, uh, how shall I use the gifts you've given me, is a fabulous, holistic uh, question for thinking about our lives. Not just our money, but our time and our talent, our, all of our resources, our homes, our friendships. How can I steward everything that you've entrusted to me for the good of the kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel, for the alleviation of suffering? Ask God, God, how shall I steward what you've given me? One of the best things you could do is, is to schedule a time to, to actually work through it. Uh, there's a new family in our church, and we had lunch. I had lunch with the husband a couple of weeks ago, and he said at his previous church in their small group, everybody knew his budget. But dang! Talk about accountability. Talk about transparency in the most intimate area. Uh, there was an invitation from other people. I want you to hold me accountable to actually living out this kind of faithful stewardship of my resources. I want you to know where my money's going and where my money's not going. Schedule a time. If you're single, schedule time with a friend that you trust and invite them into that conversation with you. Not to be braggadocious, not to be showy, but to, like, to a fellow follower of Jesus and say, I want, I want some other eyes on helping me to see the blind spots in my relationship with money and my fear of control and all of that. If you're married, uh, for you and your spouse to sit down, to get together with friends and actively talk through this question, how shall I steward the resources you've given me? Ask a better question. The third encouragement I would give is to make a plan to give. The tithe is a great guide. Like I said, I don't think that the New Testament teaches a mandatory tithe. I think that it's much more costly than that. I think the tithe is a great guide. For those who are poor, the tithe can be crushing. It's probably too much. And there are those in our community who are wealthy, and the tithe is not nearly enough, not nearly challenging enough. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this in Mere Christianity. He says, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So my, my personal belief and practice is in tithing first to the church, and then anything over that is to be given to, to help the poor to advance the gospel in the world. That's where I have landed personally. The Apostle Paul said each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves cheerful givers. And then the fourth encouragement I would say is to give with eyes on Jesus. I think it's entirely possible to tithe 
and to do it to meet some kind of religious obligation because you feel socially pressured into it and miss the point. Whatever you choose to do, however you choose to steward your resources, do it as unto the Lord. Do it with a view when you're writing that check, when you're swiping that credit card or that debit card. When you're doing that, do it unto the Lord. Do it with eyes on Jesus. Make it an act of trust and worship and assume that God is looking on you with love just like he looked on the rich young ruler. He looked at him and he loved him. What would be different in your world or in my world if we actually believed that the resources given to us didn't belong to us but were God's? What would change in your world if you actually behaved as if you were just a steward and not an owner of everything that's been entrusted to you? And there will come a day when you'll ultimately give an account for what you've done with all that's been entrusted to you. And what would be different in our world if everybody who loved Jesus adopted this mentality that everything that is given to us actually belongs to him and we're to steward it for the advancing of his kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel in the world? What kind of suffering would be alleviated if all of us responded with joyful obedience? There was a guy who came into work one morning, and he encountered a homeless woman sleeping on the front steps of his place of work and felt an inclination to, like, literally turn around and walk to the other side of the building because I don't want, just don't want to have to deal with that. But, like, literally remembering the story of the Good Samaritan thought, dang it, I can't do that because that's what the bad guys do in the story. And so goes in uh, to the office, gets a cup of coffee, gets together some things to bless this person, goes out, says, hey, good morning, I saw that you're here, I just wanted to give you some, some resources to hopefully help your day get off on a good foot, and handed her a cup of coffee. As he left, he said, God bless you. And as he walked away, she said, I love you too. What, if, what is the world missing out on? like there's, there's love for Jesus. There's love to be had in the world that's on the other side of our generosity, that's on the other side of our, our trusting act. It's on the other side of doing good in the name of Jesus, stewarding our resources and our time and our words and our presence to bless the poor and to bless the world. What joy is on the other side of our joyful obedience? I've mentioned this a million times because I love it, but there's a worship leader named Matt Redman. has a song called Breathing the Breath. He says, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good and perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. So all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. What would it look like if we behaved as if that were true? This morning, I just want to invite you to consider, and, and considering it in this building won't be enough. I hope that you'll be deliberate about scheduling a time to ask this question as a family or a group of friends. Say, God, how shall I use the resources that you've entrusted to me for the good of the kingdom? How shall I steward what you've given to me? How can I be most faithful in that task? Uh, Emily and I are expecting a fourth kid. It's like, what? What? <laughs> and 
we, when the times that we've been pregnant, I always go to mentally the like discomfort and hassle of dealing with a baby. <laughs> like I'm an introvert. I've only got so much energy to go around. When I found out she was pregnant, I thought, oh gosh, I do not, I'm not a good enough dad to do this. I have four children. I don't have enough energy to do this. But I always think on the front side of pregnancy of the cost, of the obstacle, of the inconvenience. And then when that day comes and that kid comes out and kind of looks like us, like the joy comes flooding back in and those tears are sweet when we meet our child. At the beginning, we could only see the cost. We could only see the inconvenience but on the other side of, of meeting this child, we experience the joy. And there is joy to be had in our lives and in our world on the other side of our obedience. So obey with joy. And know that your heavenly Father looks on you not with judgment or with shame, but with love. So let's pray together. Father, in our, in our heart, don't let us escape from the question today, how shall we steward what you've entrusted to us? And there may be people in the room for whom the question about money is a secondary question because they're holding on to the reins of all of their life, you know, much less their money, like there's, there's nothing they've trusted to you. If that's you, Jesus loves you. It's, made, it's scary to surrender trust, but he loves you. He knows what you need before you ask. He knows your fears. He knows your joys. He knows your insecurities. He knows your need for an image and, and relationship and physical security, emotional security. Will you trust him today? For all of us, no matter where you are in your discipleship or your relationship with Jesus, if it comes to your hopes of being married, your hopes of having a child, your desire to control your resources, your desire to, to have an image, like, no matter where you are, Jesus loves you, and he wants to invite you to trust him. How are you to steward? How are you to entrust to him the things that he's given to you? God, help us. Pour out your spirit on us. May salvation come to this house and to the homes, the families, and our church as we entrust you with our whole lives and choose you and reject allegiance to mammon. Help us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.